morning. How's everyone? So I said this in the first service, I'm going to say it again, but um, I, I felt like, you know, when, you, when you're watching football and you see the, the second string quarterback and he's got the red jersey on and the headset and he's having fun because he's you know, doing what he does and all of a sudden the quarterback goes down and he gets the call and you see like their reaction is always the same. For that split second, it's always that you know, during the headlights look before they get into the, uh, into the, you know, the game. But I did feel like that on Tuesday night when Andrew called. But um, anyway, it is an honor to do that both for him and the Lord. So we're going to get, we're going to get moving this morning. So trust, we're going to talk about trust this morning. How often do we hear that word? Better yet, uh, what about the statement, trust me? If you notice when we hear this word in conversation, it's usually followed by a list of reasons why. And have you, have you ever thought about that? In our world, when someone asks us to trust them, we expect, better yet, we demand reasons. We want to see resumes. We want references. We want to conduct a Facebook poll to get others on the decision. We, I mean, we naturally, I think at our core, we just don't trust. And it doesn't appear to be in our nature and I think that's, that's fine. I think it can all be reduced to the introduction of sin into the world. But regardless, as a people, we don't seem to trust easy. And I think for every person you can name that's trustworthy, we can immediately rattle off five who, who aren't. And I find myself guilty of this as well. And I really want to trust people. I want to think the best of people. And I pray that I do, but many times I just don't. And I think I get this honest, though. Um, when I was 10, my dad had a sailboat. And I don't know if anybody's ever been on a sailboat. Better yet, uh, a catamaran like you see here. Um, so my dad had this 18-foot catamaran he bought used back in 1989. And, and this catamaran came with what they call a trapeze. And for those of you don't, that don't know what that is... Um, see the guy that's leaning out over the water? He is on a trapeze. It's essentially like a fancy harness that you clip into the side of the boat and you lean out over the water because for a catamaran, it is fastest when both holes are in the water. Though it looks cool to uh, do what he's doing there. It's actually faster with both holes in the water. And it may sound like a lot of fun, but as a 10-year-old, it's not. Uh, it's terrifying. And so dad purchased this, this new trapeze at one point, and he asked me to test it out. So here's the thing. I have a twin brother. It's just the two of us, my, myself and my brother, Will. And I'm sure we played paper, rock, scissors to figure out who had to test it. But um, I must have picked uh, the wrong one because it was me. And here's the kicker to the story. He didn't have me test this out on the water. Uh, he had me test this out. And not even on soft dirt, but on the uh, black asphalt of Drear Island State Park at Lake Murray Boat Landing. So I trusted. And I trusted that even though it appeared the buckle was upside down, my dad was right. And so I leaned back into the good South Carolina air. And I even asked him right before I did, though, I said, Dad, I, I think this is upside down. And his reply to me was, no, son, it's just the way you're looking at it. Anyway, instead of the trapeze catching me, the asphalt did. And so I basically backsplatted uh, right in, you know, into the parking lot. Yes, it was full of people. It was a busy day. 
And so there began my journey of trust issues. So we're going to move on from that, though. I just wanted you to know where I'm coming from in this story. So looking at Scripture, Scripture is full of stories of trust. It's full of accounts of God being a trustworthy God, a God who does what he says he's going to do, a God who fulfills his promises. And we can look to the first book of the Bible to see this as well. So this morning, we're going to be in the book of Genesis most of you know Genesis being the first book of the Bible. It's also the first of five books that is known by the Hebrew word, the Torah, which means law. And sometimes you'll hear English scholars refer to these, these first five books as the Pentateuch, which is just a fancy Latin word for five books. Um, but but the, the interesting thing about Genesis and the great thing about it is it answers a lot of questions for us. Um, three that come to mind answers, where does our world come from? It answers how does sin enter into existence. And it also answers what does God have in mind for the world. And when you look at this as a book, you can divide it between two sections. Chapters 1 through 11, what they call the primeval history, is your creation, the fall, the flood, and the rebellion at Babel. And then we have what we call the patriarchal history, which is chapters 12 through 50. And during these, these chapters, attention is given to five people, Abraham, Isaac, Esau, Jacob, and Joseph. However, there's narratives that deal specifically with three, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. And so this morning, we're going to look at Joseph from chapter 37. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there, or you can access the scriptures through the online sermon notes. And I want to give you a piece of good news. Other than Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8, we will literally park in 37 all morning. So you're not going to have to flip back and forth. I know Andrew loves the sound of that, and so I apologize. But um, we're going to be stuck right in 37 for, uh, for the most part. The goal of today and the goal of the message and the goal of what we're studying today is to encourage us to put our trust in Jesus, to look, to look at the life of, of Joseph and look at the plan God had for, for him and to see that sovereign plan for his life. And as we move forward, I think that plan will be very evident. So we're going to start this morning with the first four verses from Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. There are, two, there are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So we see the delight of Jacob in his son. And why did his son love him so much? Well, he was the youngest. He was likely the one that doted on him since his mother's death. So there's probably a connection there. Um, Joseph was also born when Jacob was very old. And um, he was born from Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, who he loved the most. And I, I think if we were talking about him today, we would probably classify him as kind of an old soul. 
Um, but on the contrary, why, why, did, why did the brothers hate him so very much? I think initially we can, we can see it you know, kind of clear. Um, he told of their wickedness uh, repeatedly. He did it you know, multiple times. He told of his dreams. And, and even the dreams that he told of, though, though, though they were true, they did indicate that one day he would rule over them. And I think here's the, the kicker. He was his father's favorite, and his father did nothing to hide that fact. I mean, in fact, he made him a coat, you know, just to make sure everyone, everyone knew. And, and when you think of him, you know, bringing their wickedness to his father, it reminds me of the scripture from Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8. It says, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Because a wise man, what? He wants to be corrected. A wise man wants to be called out in sin, but the fool doesn't. And the fool will hate both the messenger and the message. And I, I don't want to downplay this hate either, because as we're going to read later, this is not the playful hate we hear amongst our own children. This is real hate. This is, this is hate derived from greed, from money, from birthrights, this is evil, murderous hate. The, the Hebrew word used here is sine, and it's used in the strongest possible sense, which indicates jealousy as well. Really, though, I, I think we can just base our, our knowing of this word, looking at the actions of his brothers, I don't think we need to do a word study on it. Based on their actions, it's very clear how much they hated him. I read an interesting commentary from Matthew Henry about this passage. Matthew Henry was a minister in the late 1600s, early 1700s. And this was interesting about him. His approach to teaching, specifically his approach to preaching, was this. He said, Choose for your pulpit subjects the plainest and most needful truths and endeavor to make them plainer. Praise God, right? I wish I could have had this gentleman in seminary. Um, I did not. Anyway, his commentary style is very, very literal. And he makes this point about what we just read. He said, it's common for those who are beloved of God to be hated by the world. Whom heaven blesses, hell curses. To those to whom God speaks comfortably, wicked men will not speak peaceably. And so to make this worse, Joseph was adorned in this coat, you know, this, this famous coat, you know, the, the coat that sparked the Broadway musical, um, a colorful one, a one that's much longer than the ones his brothers wore. And so in those times, the coat of the working class was short-sleeved and short, so you know, it's not to inhibit freedom of movement as, as they did manual labor. But those who did not do manual labor had the longer variety, the long sleeves, and so this was likely the latter. So not only did this coat show that he was indeed his father's favorite, it indicated he was likely going to be the recipient of many things at the time of Jacob's death, up to and including the inheritance, though he wasn't the oldest. Because who was the oldest? Reuben, if you remember, Reuben was the oldest, and it should have gone to him, and Reuben did do a lot of good things, but if you remember, Reuben had a lot of underlying character flaws. And I think um, it, later on in Genesis, Jacob actually identifies them as well. But um, by all accounts, this was going to, to Joseph. 
So let's, let's move forward into the next five verses, verses five through 10, as we talk about his dream. It says, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And by the way, sheaves are just bunches of wheat tied together. So moving to nine, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So you know, as I was reading this passage, it reminded me of, of the quote of a quote by Walt Whitman, who's a, you know, the famous American poet. Uh, he wrote, Oh, Captain, My Captain, and, and some other stuff. But I've always liked this quote, and it says, If you've done it, it ain't bragging. And uh, I don't know why this always appealed to me. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure it's actually true. So I, I, think, I think the quote may be better reserved for like a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or something. And maybe not like a, a, a mantra for how we live. Because think about it. If you've done it, it ain't bragging. But, but, but isn't it? Because in this case, what David's saying is, is true. He's, he's repeating what happened to him. He's not making anything up. However, I, th- I think his youth kind of comes through here. It shows you know, a lack of tact, a, a lack of empathy maybe for his brother's. Um, today, we'd probably call it a, a low EQ, um, but what it is is boasting at its core. And so then, it, I'm, I'm a fan of Walt Whitman. I think he got it wrong on here. Um, so go, going back to Matthew Henry, uh, he says about this particular dream, he makes this comment about, about Joseph's dream. He said, the faith of God's people and God's promises is often sorely shaken by their misunderstanding the promises and then suggesting the improbabilities that attend the performance. But God is doing his own work and will do it whether we understand him or not. Jacob, like Mary, kept these things in his heart and no doubt remembered them long afterwards when the event answered to the prediction. And so when you go back to Joseph talking about these dreams, um, it's interesting you see the different reactions uh, from his family. You know, for, for his brothers, this just fuels their hatred for him. And you're going to see it in the next passage. They start you know, basically referring to him as the dreamer. And, and yet the father's, the father's response is much more subdued. And it's as you would expect. It's more of a gentle rebuke because he knows who Joseph is and he knows Joseph's heart. And as parents, I think we can relate to this really well. I mean, I think a lot of times we're in this position and we find ourselves having to gently guide our own children back, in, you know, back on the right path. So, so moving, moving on, let, let's go to verses 18 through 25. So it says, They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say a fierce animal has devoured him. And we'll see what will become of his dreams. 
But when Reuben heard, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, his robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. So here is the disdain of the brothers. He's been sent to go find his brothers. And when Jacob sends Joseph to go find his brothers, we're talking about 60 to 70 miles away as Shechem is from Hebron. So this isn't right down the road. And they see him coming from afar. they, They make the comment, here comes the dreamer. And their hate reaches a tipping point. And they nearly decide on murdering him. And in fact, they would have had it not been for Reuben. Which brings the question, why would Reuben you know, talk them out of murder? Well, Reuben being the oldest, he would have been the most responsible. So he may have had some favor left for Joseph, but he's doing this to protect himself just as well. In fact, if you look forward to what he says when, when he first notices that Joseph's gone, he doesn't say, you know, where is he or, oh my gosh, what happened to him? He says, what am I going to do? Essentially, he's saying, what's going to happen to me? Now, thinking about Joseph, think about the feelings he must have now at this point. The two I think about are probably hopelessness and despair. He finds himself in this pit, torn of his clothing, and his brothers are eating a meal above him. I mean, how they hated him. You know, here comes the dreamer, and and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. And I think the worst part is they don't care. They don't care so much that they enjoy a meal during this time. How many of us can relate, though, to this? I mean, how many of us have been in the depths of sorrow and of misery and of despair? And we look around and we, and we wonder, does anyone even care? And, and I think in times like this, we can be particularly prone to these feelings as we look around and we see that the world just keeps on moving and we don't want it to. And I believe the enemy delights at these times. When we go down this road, I think it pleases him. When we begin to question, when we begin to doubt, when we begin to despair, and when we begin to feel hopeless. And I want to make one side note on doubting. Doubting is okay. Doubting is fine. We all do it. We all doubt at times, but it's what we do with it that matters. As a Christian, as a believer, Doubting to us should be the call to arms to get into the scriptures, to get with a pastor, to get with the church, to work through it. Because doubt left as is can lead to unbelief. And remember, that's not what doubt is. Doubt is not unbelief. It's uncertainty. And as Christians, we have to be prepared for these feelings and we have to take action when they do. Because in doing so, this can lead to a much deeper, a much more authentic faith. So going, going back to the scripture, 
He's confined to his own despair. And a band of Ishmaelites begin to pass by, moving from Gilead to Egypt, and he sold. He sold to them for, for what, 20 pieces of silver. The brothers didn't want all the blood on their hands, so they passed him off to the slave traders. And this would not have been a quick journey. This journey would have been through the desert. It would have taken somewhere around 30 days. And I think it's safe to assume that he would have been chained during the entire time. And the point in this is that Joseph suffered greatly. Hopelessness, despair, pain, and betrayal. And I think some similarities can be drawn here to our Lord who suffered all of these as well. Humiliation, pain, and betrayal. So I want to move to our last section in chapter 37, verses 32 through 35. It says, And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Shell to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And in this case, Shell is nothing more than the general word for the afterlife in the Hebrew Bible. It's neither heaven nor hell. So we're at the distress, the distress of Jacob. And what do we see? The deceit continues. But again, it's interesting here. They don't fully commit to the lie. They deceive Jacob into making a false assumption. All part of their plan. And speaking of Jacob, doesn't this seem a bit familiar? Didn't he too deceive his father? If you remember the blessing from Isaac where Jacob pretends to be Esau in order to receive it. And what's he doing here? He's believing a lie. And from David Guzik makes a, a great point on this. He said, this is a powerful illustration of the principle that if we believe something to be so, it may as well be. Joseph was not dead, but as long as Jacob believed he was, as far as Jacob was concerned, Joseph was dead. Listen to this part. In the same way the Christian has in truth been set free from sin, but if Satan can persuade us that we're under the tyranny of sin, we may as well be. And doesn't he do this? How many of us today live under the constant feelings of guilt and shame from our sins? Feelings that no matter how hard we try to get over, they keep nagging at us. They tell us we're not good enough to be forgiven. That our sins are too great. They're too severe. They're too awful. And society agrees with this, right? Of course they do. Check out, check out Facebook for a minute. Boycott. Shame. Eternal online punishment. No forgiveness. Cancel culture. Just like Andrew preached on last fall. And so on. And I want to make this point very, very clear once sins are repented of and in turn forgiven, any feelings of guilt and shame do not come 
from our loving Father, but they come from evil. They come from Satan because he doesn't want you to live in the peace that Christ provides. Rather, as Guzik states, he wants you to live under the tyranny of sin. Know this and guard your heart against this. So when we look at this story and we look at what Joseph did, what what do we do with all of this? Well, we trust. Because taken individually, everything that happened to Joseph looks awful. If this had been us, how easy would it have been not to trust? I mean, would we have? And and we see the outcome of it, but the trap I don't want us to fall into with this passage is thinking that this story is simply one with a good moral. You know, uh, uh, keep the faith, uh, keep plugging away, a relentless forward progress type of idea. But because here's the reality. The reality is we are in trials now. And, And our church is under fire from the world a world that is perfectly okay with us as long as we stay in our pen, to use the phrase from Bodie Bachman. As long as we're nothing more than any other works-based charitable organization, the world is all right with us. As long as we don't speak too crazy about Jesus, the world is okay with us. As long as we don't make people uncomfortable, as long as we can agree that Jesus was a good moral teacher without mentioning he's the son of the living God. As long as we can water down our theology to cater to the whim of society, then and only then will they be okay with us. But we can't. Our fear must be of God and not of man and not of society because we have to trust. Joseph trusted. During trials that we have, we have to trust. We have to trust that our gospel's true. We have to trust that it's so perfect, so full of love, so merciful, that we're a people whose debt has been wiped clean. And that by our faith in him, the debt of sin that we're all born with, that we all share, has truly been forgiven, that one came for us, and that he walked with us, and that he suffered with us, and that he died for us, so we may live eternally in union with our Creator. Trust this, and put your faith in the truth. I want to end this morning with an incredible analysis going back to David Guzik, that he has of this story and of this plan. And he says this. He says, we can thank God for his great plan. If Joseph's brothers never sell him to the Midianites, then Joseph never goes to Egypt. If he never goes to Egypt, he's never sold to Potiphar. If he's never sold to Potiphar, Potiphar's wife never falsely accuses him of rape. If she never accuses him of rape, he's never put in prison. If he's never put in prison... He never meets the baker and the butler of Pharaoh. If he never meets the baker and butler of Pharaoh, he never interprets their dreams. If he he never interprets their dreams, he never interprets Pharaoh's dreams. 
if he never gets to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, he's never made prime minister. If he's never made prime minister, he never wisely administrates for the severe famine coming upon the region. If he never wisely administrates for the severe famine, then his family back in Canaan perishes from the famine. If his family back in Canaan perishes, the Messiah can't come from a dead family. And if the Messiah can't come forth, then Jesus never came. And if Jesus never came, you are dead in your sins and without hope in this world. So let's all thank God for his great plan. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. And thank you for this church. Father, thank you for bringing us together. Lord, we know that you're here with us. Father, you know the state of the world that we live in. And as, as we walk through all the chaos, all the disease, all the pain and suffering and death, please help us to trust. Help us to trust your plan, just as Joseph did. Give us wisdom that our faith may be strengthened and that we may be used to make you known to all of the world. Father, we want to lift up our church today. All those in our church today who are suffering, we ask that you give them the peace that surpasses all understanding. And that in their suffering, Father, their faith will be made stronger. We ask all this in your beautiful name. Amen.